Have you ever wondered, why am I going through this? Why is this happening to me? Why do I have to suffer? Why am I being misunderstood? Why doesn't this girl like me? Why doesn't that boy ask me out? Why are we still childless? Why is that person still persecuting me? Why don't I have a loving family? Why do my children not understand me? Why don't my parents understand me? Why am I lonely? Why hasn't my life turned out the way I thought it would? Why don't I have a better job? Why do I have a horrible job? Why don't I have a job? Why am I still in school? Why can't I attend school? Why am I in this particular school? Basically, insert whatever situation you are in and put in the word why. We've all asked those why questions. Or perhaps have you ever thought about things like, I thought that when something happened, I would be happy. I thought that when I had children, got a house, got that great job, joined that wonderful church, became a believer, believed in Jesus, or when I thought that our kids would grow up, or I moved to such and such a place, my troubles would all be over. You see, whether you are an adult, teenager, or a child, whether you're a student, working, or retired, whatever life stage you are in, I'm sure you have thought about these questions, especially when you are going through difficult times or times of trial. And it is in those moments of your life when you wonder, and when I wonder, what in the world is God doing? What we expect and what is reality is like night and day, and it is a real puzzlement to us. And in those times when we wonder what God is up to, we often begin to lose confidence and courage in our faith walk because God is seemingly absent. He doesn't seem to be involved. He doesn't seem to care. And our confidence in Him is shaken. But as someone has once said, God's will, God's plan is like a giant jigsaw puzzle. You won't be able to see the whole picture until all the pieces are together. As we continue our sermon series entitled Courage in the Crucible, as we study the book of Joshua, we can find courage even when we don't understand what God is doing. Because it's not about us fully understanding how He operates. It's about us understanding that He is always with us, using unique circumstances, people, and even events to bring us closer to Him. I want to show you five biblical principles to help us navigate five life scenarios you may be going through so that you can find the courage to live for the Lord in whatever circumstances you may find yourself. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 5, as we take a look at verses 1 to 15. Joshua, chapter 5. I read Joshua, chapter 5, verse 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites, who were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. If you remember, in chapters 3 and 4, we talked about how the Lord miraculously dried up the raging river Jordan to allow the people of Israel to cross into the promised land of Canaan to reclaim their rightful land. Here in chapter 5, we're told that all the kings who lived in the land from Jericho all the way to the Mediterranean Sea were suddenly scared of the people of Israel because of what the Lord had done. Their morale was deflated, 
and they were deeply affected by what the Lord had done for the Israelites. But while we as the readers know about the heart condition of the Canaanites because of the inspiration of Scripture to the writer, this information would not have been readily known to Joshua and the people. For them, it was simply a miraculous act on the part of God to get them from the eastern side of the River Jordan to the western side and therefore overcoming a huge challenge. But in fact, the drying up of the River Jordan served another purpose as God used it to strike fear in the hearts of the enemy Canaanites for the benefit of the Israelites, even if they didn't know about it. This verse illustrates principle number one of how God operates. God works in the background, unbeknownst to us, for our benefit. God works in the background, unbeknownst to us, for our benefit. Through people, circumstances, events, situations, and other means, God is sovereignly orchestrating the situation, often in the background, so that His people are protected, taken care of, blessed, helped, or perhaps will even learn a lesson. This is a truth and principle, my friends, we really need to learn and understand. We don't always have to see how God is working. His outworking doesn't have to be visible to us for it to count. And while we want to see so that our faith will be increased, the reality is that even while we are asleep, God is at work. My friends, do you lie awake at night wondering if you will have enough oxygen to breathe Worrying if the plants and the trees of this world are doing its work to convert carbon dioxide to oxygen? Do you wonder if the hydroelectric power plants are generating enough power and if the electricity lines are adequately carrying the electrical currents to power your device when you turn on your computer or television? Of course not. You trust that there are systems and individuals working in the background so that all you have to do is breathe deeply to get your lungs full of the oxygen that you need. Or you simply turn on the computer with the reassurance that it will power up because of the electricity that is supplied. So it is with the Lord. You and I don't have to know all that God is doing in the background to know that He is working for our benefit even when we rest. Long ago, King David wrote, Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. In that great psalm, Psalm 121, God is working even when we are sleeping. God is working for our benefit even when we are unaware. I like how Ron Melth puts it. God works the night shift. God works the night shift. When working in the background sometimes, God uses people to change us for our benefit to be Christ-like in ways we may not expect. I was recently reminded of this example of how He works in the background through people. Two weeks ago, our church member, Richard Tan, went to be with the Lord just one month short of turning 60. He was a beloved person in our church who had special needs. The news of his passing made many of us feel very sad from the old to the young. He was a fixture in our annual intra-church basketball tournaments, and the players just loved him. It was wonderful to hear the outpouring of stories of how his life touched so many just by being who he was. I'm sure he didn't realize how many lives he indeed touched. One usher mentioned it was because of Richard that he came to church early 
because Richard was always the first at our 7.30 a.m. Sunday service. And it would be an embarrassment to have someone arriving at the church before the church usher. And so that was his motivation to come early to fulfill his duties to get to church before Richard. Another recounted his amazing memory of how Richard, who probably had savant syndrome, he knew everyone and he remembered everything. Even with special needs, Richard remembered if you showed up on a given Sunday or not. He would come up to people every Sunday and tell them, I didn't see you the previous week, or I haven't seen you at church for a long time. And he wasn't shy about it. And it kept people accountable to come to church. I remember him as one who loved to shake hands. There wasn't a person Richard didn't want to approach and shake hands with, which reminded me of the type of effort I needed to meet more people, more new people, especially when I wanted simply to fall back to my comfort areas of the people I knew. There are so many stories of how this special man that God put into our church touched the lives of many in unique ways. But that's God working in the background in ways through people and also through circumstances that are not so obvious for us, really to better us and for our benefit. That is how God works. It's often unknown to us, but it is for our own good. Look with me at verses 2 and 3 of Joshua chapter 5. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. Right after they crossed into the promised land and the waters of the mighty river Jordan came back, the first thing... To our surprise that the Lord asks Joshua to do is to prepare knives so that all the males of Israel would be circumcised. You would think they would be told to fortify their positions as they were now in enemy lands. But instead they were to make knives to circumcise all the males. You just want to yell back as you're reading this. You're going to do what? This is the first thing you're going to do? Now, if you're unfamiliar with this procedure known as circumcision, you can ask your parents or ask your doctor about this procedure. But suffice it to say, having this procedure done to you in the most private and sensitive parts of the male body would render someone pretty much useless in fighting anyone until such time the wound was healed. The practice of circumcision was first asked of Abraham, the forefather of the Israelites, and asked of every generation of Israelites to show that they were part of an unconditional covenant made between Abraham and the Lord. And that covenant would pass to succeeding generations. Of course, this is not an obligation for Christians today because our identity as children of God through Jesus is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But why does God ask for this procedure to be done at this moment? Look at verses 4 to 7. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were male, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that He would not show them the land 
which the Lord had sworn to the fathers as he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he had raised up in their place for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. The reason was that the generation that left Egypt were all circumcised just as they left according to the laws that God had for the people of Israel at that time. But that generation rebelled against God And they were not able to enter the promised land. And they didn't trust that God would help them conquer the land. And therefore, as punishment, that generation was forced to wander the wilderness for 40 years until they died out. The children who were born in the wilderness wanderings were now the ones entering the promised land of Canaan. And they were the fighting men. But unfortunately, they were not circumcised, which further showed the spiritual indifference of their parents who died in the wilderness wanderings. But in obedience to the Lord, the people of Israel were to do what they were asked of them, even if it didn't make full sense to them why they were to do it, or it seemed so odd, the timing of what they were asked to do. You see, principle number two, God requires us to live in obedience, even if things don't make sense or don't seem to be the right timing. God requires us to live in obedience even if things don't make sense or don't seem to be the right timing. Imagine the first thing you are to do when you cross into the land full of enemies is to get circumcised. Now that doesn't make sense. And really of all times, right when they should be preparing to conquer the land, to prepare for battle, God wants them to take time out to do this procedure. Could they not have been instructed to do this earlier? or perhaps a bit later. But this is a vivid reminder that when the things of our life don't make sense, or when the timing seems off, our responsibility is not to try to figure out what exactly God is doing. Our responsibility is just to live rightly and to live in obedience to God's clear instructions in the Bible. You don't see Joshua questioning the procedure and the timing of the procedure. In fact, he simply obeys. And in verse 6, it is a reminder to the current generation that the mistakes of the past generation was that they did not obey. Obedience to the Lord in times of uncertainty is really how you build up your faith in God. It allows you to trust the Lord more strongly. You know, there are times in our lives when we simply can't figure out what God is doing, but we have to hold on in obedience to God's Word. These circumstances may be when our businesses are failing or they're falling apart while our competitors are prospering. So we begin to think of unethical means to perhaps advance or to prosper our business. It is in those times that we need to obey God's Word. Or we're not doing well in school and our classmates are doing well and so we begin to think about cheating. It is in those times that we need to cling to God's Word. Or perhaps our marriage is strained and others in similar situations have used it as justification to stray and to find someone else to give them comfort and love. That's when God's Word becomes clear of how we are to act. Or when we are desperate in need of money, we may be tempted to throw away our convictions and think about stealing or taking advantage of others. That is when we need to obey God's Word. Or in our singleness, we wonder why God hasn't allowed us to meet anyone eligible who is a believer. 
And many of our friends in the same situations have lowered their standards and have married unbelievers. That's when we need to hold on in obedience to God's Word. Or we don't understand why God has to tell us to wait to express our intimacy in love, but only after marriage, while everyone else is already enjoying intimacy in love before marriage. That's when we have to obey God's Word, even though we can't figure out what God is doing in our life. In all of those circumstances where things don't make sense and we don't understand God's timing, our responsibility is simply to live in obedience to God and His Word, to draw intimately close to Him. Hang in there, my friends. God is working in your life. Just patiently obey. That is your responsibility. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. When the circumcision was done, the people of Israel were in a very precarious position. To the west of them stands the strategic fortified city of Jericho and other fortified cities. To the east is the raging river Jordan. So there was no way of escape if the Canaanites were to attack. They were camped in the plains of Jericho, fully exposed to any attacking army. And all the men could not fight and defend themselves as they were recovering from a very painful procedure. Notice that there wasn't any sort of phased rollout of the circumcision where some of the men were circumcised and when they had healed another group was circumcised. The Bible tells us in verse 8, all were circumcised at the same time and all of them were healing at the same time. They would be exposed and vulnerable, but they had to trust that God would not allow the enemies to attack at that moment, which He did not if you go back to verse 1. Or they also had to trust that God would be able to protect them as they defended their positions, if they were attacked in their weakened state. God put them in this state of exposed vulnerability, where the only option for them was to trust Him for protection and victory. And that's often a situation that God puts us in to learn to trust Him. You see, principle number three for how God operates. Number three, God puts us in vulnerable situations and exposed positions to learn to trust Him fully. God puts us in vulnerable situations and exposed positions to learn to trust Him fully. Have you ever been left exposed and feeling very vulnerable and you wonder who else you can turn to because no one will stick with you? Have you ever been put in a situation where no one believes you or you are accused of something which isn't true? You know the truth. But it's not fair that they are accusing you of such things. These situations are very difficult to endure. And I have been in some of these situations. And it is in those moments that you have no one else to turn to but to God. To trust fully in His protection, His victory, His vindication. God puts us in those situations so that we can learn to let go of relying on ourselves and to leave the situation to Him. Someone once wrote, I went to church a lot when my husband left me and divorced me. 
It was the only place I could go and hide in a corner and listen to the music and wait for God to take everything that was broken and make something new with it. I was scared to leave the house that year, scared to walk down the street that year, scared to run into friends that year, scared to talk to my parents, scared to be with my kids for fear I would break down or that they would ask questions I couldn't answer. I was terrified of taking my children to all of their events, which I just saw as shame landmines. I was terrified of going to things like back-to-school night. Those back-to-school nights were the worst, and Thanksgiving and Christmas were nightmares. My family was as devastated as I was. I couldn't take care of myself, and there was no way I could take care of them. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I was showing up depressed and anxious if I showed up at all. I was fearful that people's disappointment of me and my failed marriage would color every conversation. I had nothing to give anyone when I wasn't at work. And when I showed up, I didn't show up because I was brave. I showed up because I had no choice. It helped that I was numb. But there wasn't enough depression medicine in the world to make that numbness go away. It was the most vulnerable experience of my life. But I went to church because I needed it. It was the only place in the world where I could go and feel like I wasn't wearing a gigantic sign on my back that said, broken person. Or more realistically, it was a place I could go where everyone was wearing that sign. My church was the only place that normalized broken people where others admitted they were broken too. Every week we confessed our communal sins and I confessed my own sins to God fervently in my head. And I think that that just sounded like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over and over again. And every week the pastor told me that nothing in heaven and nothing on earth could separate me from the love of God in Christ. And I wept hearing that every week. I was like a very small and lost child. I needed to hear that I was loved unconditionally like I needed food and water. And the people of the church who barely knew me, they prayed for me. They asked me how I was. They played with my kids. You see, it was hard to be a mom then. I was mostly just vacant and empty when I wasn't crying. It was messy. I showed up messy. It was the only way I could show up. But in my most vulnerable moment was when God was most present in my life. It was then that I learned to fully trust Him. It was in that life moment when I realized the courage to be vulnerable. You see, my friends, none of us are okay. All of us, even as Christians, are broken people. We are all saved by grace. We are all sinners saved by grace. We don't always have to pretend that we are perfect, that our families are perfect, that our work circumstance and situation is perfect, that our school life is perfect. But it's in those times of vulnerabilities and weaknesses where the Bible tells us that God's strength is perfected in us. And so God brings us to these moments of life vulnerabilities to expose the true us, brokenness and all, messy and all, and the truth that the only person we can fully trust is God Himself. And we are drawn to Him in those moments. Look at verses 10 to 12. Now the children of Israel camped at Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. 
and they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. In addition to being circumcised and left vulnerable, something else happened after they celebrated Passover. The manna that God prepared for them every morning in their wilderness wanderings stopped. Their safety net was taken away. If you don't remember, God had provided manna for the people of Israel when they left Egypt so that they would have food to eat and survive in the wilderness. It was a miraculous provision from the Lord every morning. Yes, the people complained about the regularity of always being manna every morning, but it was still there every morning as a gift from God to sustain them so that they would survive. But after they crossed into the land of Canaan, this miraculous gift from God was taken away. It stopped. Now, why would God take away their food source? Well, the Bible tells us because now they were in the land of Canaan, which had food. They now had to work hard to gather it. They had to conquer the land as commanded by God so that they could survive and eat off the land. Perhaps God knew that these people had grown accustomed to simply getting daily manna, and they wouldn't have much motivation to take on the challenging task of conquering the land in obedience to the Lord. But now with their food source gone, they had motivation to eat off the land by conquering it. God took away a possible crutch and hindrance that would hinder their motivation to obey God and gave them a real motivation to do as He has commanded. You see, principle four of how God operates. Number four, God takes away our safety nets to motivate us to do His work and to see other blessings that He provides. God takes away our safety nets to motivate us to do His work and to see other blessings He provides. When God takes away what we hold on so securely to, or He takes away what He has previously given us, we often get angry with God. Why would He do that? Doesn't He love us anymore? The people of Israel could have said the same thing. Lord, You brought us into this land and then You took away our morning manna. None of us like it when our safety net is taken away. But in reality, God often does that because He knows we've grown too soft, too secure, too set in our ways, too dependent on these things. And it's time to shake us up for our own good, to see that we can be spurred and motivated to do His work and to even see the other blessings that He has given us in our lives so that we won't be so tunnel-visioned into certain things. For the people of Israel, it was to see and realize that the land indeed was full of milk and honey. It was a wonderful land. It was a land full of produce, so much better than the manna that was provided. Now, it's not a great feeling when God takes away our safety nets. But when they are taken away, we see other blessings. Blessings that perhaps we wouldn't have seen if the safety net wasn't taken away. When close friends are taken away from us, we realize that there are other friends. When our wealth is taken away from us, we realize there are things so much better than material things. When our health is taken away, we come to realize the blessings of community and others who come to help that God brings. Tiffany McDonald writes 
On November 5 of 2015, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Everything changed. Not only did I need help, but everyone could see how vulnerable I was as I lost my hair and became physically weak from treatments. The lessons breast cancer continues to teach me is that I need to live as I believe. You see, I had bought into the American ideals that I can do it myself. But I realized I had to allow others to care for me. I hated asking for help. I hated needing help. Fiercely independent. I liked to be alone and to do it alone. I had to come to the realization that I was not alone in this. During my treatments, my family needed meals. My children needed play dates. And sometimes I needed to call in sick and let my staff cover for me. My head and my heart knew the truth of needing others as I was surrounded by love and care and meals. I was reminded of the truth that I do need other people and they are God's blessings to me. My friends, are you willing to accept when God takes away the safety nets of perhaps your health, your wealth, your resources, your home, your car, your possessions, your prestige, your position, in order to motivate us to do His work and to show the other blessings He has provided us in this life. If some of you are going through times like this, I know how difficult it is. But when God takes away our safety nets, He doesn't leave us hanging. He is there to catch us with His safety net, which is so much better than our own physical one. He's there to love upon us and provide care for us, perhaps in the form of other people. Look at verse 13 with me. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Soon after these events, as Joshua was surveying Jericho, that he met a man with his sword drawn. Of course, the natural question is, whose side are you on? Joshua was not expected to know all of the soldiers of the 12 tribes under his command. Joshua's question is the usual question we ask on practically everything and about everyone as we encounter life. Are you on my side or are you against me? Is this life event to help me or to hurt me? Is this trial for me or against me? As if in life there are only two sides to everything. And if it's against me, then I will fight it with all of my heart. But look at this man's reply. Look at verses 14 and 15. So he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. The reply of the man did not answer Joshua's questions, but said that he was the commander of the Lord's angelic army. You see, there is a third side, a third option, and that was God's side. And Joshua wisely recognized this truth and humbly asked if there was a word from God for him as Joshua took off his sandals in recognition of the holiness of that place as commanded by this angelic commander to show that he is in God's corner. He was in a new playing field, not his side or the other side, but on God's side. You see, it wasn't about him versus the people of Jericho. 
It was about him aligning himself with God and his holiness. You see, principle number five is this. God reminds us that he takes no sides, but we are to align ourselves to his team, his side. God reminds us that he takes no sides, but we are to align ourselves to his team to be on his side. Joshua's instinctive question is really indicative of our heart's thinking that there are only two options, my side or the other side. This occurs even as it relates to our relationship with God. God, are you on my side or are you against me? Imagine the audacity to demand of God that he be on our side and even claiming falsely that you know for certain that God approves of what you are doing and saying that this is God's will or this is what God wants. I'm always very fearful and reluctant to proclaim that something is God's will or that this must be of God unless it is specifically stated in the Scripture as being from the Lord. We have to understand that there are a lot of things that are shaded by our natural tendency and our bias to think that there are only two sides and God must be on one of them. Take, for example, the Super Bowl that's happening this weekend. One team will win and the other team will lose. The winning team and the winning fans will say that God was on their side, God was with them. But truthfully, the losing team with its losing fans can also rightfully say that God is with them as well. You see, God isn't always on the side that supposedly wins. I just want you to think about this profound truth. That means that practically, just because a business or someone is prospering doesn't mean that God is with them in their business or God is blessing that person. And certainly He is not with them if that business or that person is doing something wrong. And this application can apply to churches or to your studies or to anything else. Just because someone is winning or prospering in this world does not mean that God is on their side. Let's not get so caught up with whose side we believe that God is on, but instead focus on the fact that we need to be on God's team and on His side by doing what He desires of us and how He wants us to live as relayed in His Word. My friends, God is on no one's side. He is on His own side, and we are the ones who need to realign ourselves to be on His side, as is indicative of Joshua's actions. This is a good reminder for us that even in our times of uncertainties, our times of trials and of difficulties, that we make sure that we are solidly aligned with God and in His will to what He has revealed in the Scriptures for how we are to live. Remember that the Lord being on our side does not mean we are guaranteed immediate success in every endeavor. What is important is the fact that we are in His sphere of desire. You know, I came across this poem. It goes something like this. It doesn't matter what odds are against you. The Lord is on your side. It doesn't matter if the circumstances are insurmountable. The Lord is on your side. It doesn't matter how dark and hopeless the situation looks. The Lord is on your side. It doesn't matter what you're up against, the Lord is on your side. It doesn't matter if the pain is intolerable, the Lord is on your side. It doesn't matter if the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord is on your side. And I want to simply say, no, this is so wrong. Maybe the intention is right, but simply wrong theology. Maybe you are in these difficult circumstances because you have sinned. And God is certainly not on your side and He is 
brought these difficult circumstances as punishment for your sin. You see, the Lord is by my side when I'm first on His side. So let me rephrase this poem. It doesn't matter what odds are against you. The Lord is by your side when you are first on His side. It doesn't matter if the circumstances are insurmountable. The Lord is by your side when you are on His side. It doesn't matter how dark and hopeless the situation looks. The Lord is by your side when you are on His side. It doesn't matter what you're up against. The Lord is by your side when you are on His side. It doesn't matter if the pain is intolerable. The Lord is by your side when you are on His side. It doesn't matter if the enemy comes in like a flood. The Lord is by your side when you are on His side. Let me end with this story by Greg Nance. He entitles it, Puzzles in the Christian Life. He says this, at our traditional family Christmas gathering with Jenny's side of the family, somebody always brings a puzzle, usually about a thousand pieces. We put it together as part of the festivities. But putting together a puzzle illustrates how we build our lives in Christ. First, to do a puzzle, we need to look at the box for the big picture. That's where we see what the finished product is supposed to look like once it's all put together properly. To follow Jesus, we need to look in the book for the big picture, reading your Bible and seeing God's big plan for your life. Second, for the puzzle, we usually dump out all the pieces and turn them all face up so you, that you can see their shapes and colors. To follow Christ, that's like starting the Christian life, turning all the pieces of my life upward to Him, repenting and committing to following Jesus in faith and obedience. To do this, we look to Christ, listen to Christ, learn from Christ, and decide to live for Christ. We commit to Jesus by faith and baptism, and the journey is begun. Third, normally with a puzzle, we start by gathering all the pieces with a flat edge on them to put together our borders and boundaries. These are the outside edges or the boundaries of the puzzle. And following Christ, that's like the first step of faith as a Christian. We begin to build boundaries in our behavior doing what is right and resisting what is wrong. We put together our Christian first principles and start putting on the armor of God. Fourth, with a puzzle, then comes the tedious part of finding where all the inner parts fit together. Listen carefully. Puzzle pieces are designed to fit together just right. You can't do it your way and come out with the right image. Sometimes you have to search and study to discover what goes where. And following Christ, that's like God's work on building the image of Christ in your heart and mind. We must humble ourselves like Jesus and obey without resistance to God's will no matter what. That takes patience and faith. It also takes careful observation, understanding, and then putting those together to work. Like a puzzle, you really need to study the box over and over as you work to figure out where to put those pieces and be encouraged that it will all come together if we persist. Jesus tells us, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And like our Christmas puzzles, as Christians, we are not alone on the journey. As Jenny's family gathering, there are lots of helpers working together and making the work a joy. We join together and find a lot of enjoyment doing it as a family. 
My friends, when you come to the part of your life where you're trying to fit in the pieces of the puzzle of your life, navigating through times of uncertainty and trials, and you're not sure what God is doing, remember to look at the big picture. It's all about Christ. You're trying to be conformed to His likeness, to be more Christ-like. And so, understanding how God works, even when you don't understand how He works, hopefully will give you the encouragement to live courageously. Remember, God works in the background, unbeknownst to us, for our benefit. God requires us to live in obedience, even if things don't make sense or don't seem to be the right time. God puts us in vulnerable situations and exposed positions to learn to trust Him fully. God takes away our safety nets to motivate us to do His work and to see other blessings that He has provided. And God reminds us that He takes no sides, but we are to align ourselves to His side, to His team. My friends, sometimes we can't see the whole picture quite yet until life is over. But in the meantime, each piece of the puzzle is to complete that beautiful picture of your life, even if that picture is not yet done. And each piece place demands that we focus on Christ and align ourselves back to the big picture that it's about Him and for us to live for His glory. And that's what God did when He made the people of Israel do what they needed to do just as they crossed over the River Jordan. And that is what He's doing in our lives, especially if you're going through times of challenges and difficulties at this moment. God knows what He's doing, my friends. You can rest fully in peace and even sleep well at night because the God of Israel, our God, neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is at work in our life all the time. May God bless you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. What a wonderful reminder and words of comfort when I don't understand what you're doing in my life. I don't understand the circumstances and I want to shake my fist at you and wonder how come you're not on my side. But it's not about you being on my side. It's about me being aligned to your side and understanding that you are at work and that you desire obedience from us. And there are times you put us in vulnerable situations. You take away our safety nets, but it is in those times that you want us to draw closer to you. It is in those times you want us to see you in all of your glory that you love us unconditionally and that you still care deeply for us. May we draw close to you, Lord, in those difficult times and be with all of your people, Lord, to give them the courage to live through these difficult times. May your word continue to challenge our hearts to draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.